Can the Defense Department help itself to commercial intellectual property, even stuff not developed with federal dollars? Well, yes, it can, as a matter of fact, at least judging from a recent case before the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. It's a warning to contractors. Haynes Boone partner Dan Ramish joins me now with the details. And this is a case that uh, touches on a long-running nerve, Dan. Tell us more what happened here. Sure, Tom. So uh, the case is Flight Safety International Incorporated, uh, an appeal at the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. And this is actually an unusual dispute between the United States government and a subcontractor, uh, Flight Safety. Flight Safety was providing uh, commercial technology under a subcontract, uh, and its specific technology was a visual system replacement for C-5 weapon system trainers. And so nothing that it, flew, but this was to be used in a training situation on the ground. And this was displays for pilots, I guess, to be able to learn how to fly that big whale safely. Right, exactly. And and so it's not uncommon for military technology to incorporate uh, commercial components. Uh, and generally, that's more cost effective uh, for the government. So it's favorable, viewed favorably. Uh, the Federal Acquisition and Streamlining Act encouraged the use of incorporating commercial technologies. And, and also, in this day and age, commercial technology is vitally important for national security. DOD wants the best cutting-edge technology that the commercial world has to offer. In this case, uh, Flight Safety developed this product under a subcontract for the Air Force, and the Air Force looked at drawings that were submitted related to this product and challenged the contractor's markings on the drawings. Right, uh, the so drawings, the, uh, that's, the, that's the key thing here. They didn't like the markings because they seem to be proprietary or designate them as proprietary. So the Air Force is the one that brought the case forward? Yes, that's right. It was a, a validation challenge. There was a final decision issued by the Air Force contracting officer who looked at the restrictive legends on these drawings that were submitted related to this visual system replacement uh, and said that the government had different rights from what the legends reflected. The contractor had said, these are proprietary. We developed them with private funds, and therefore, you know, you get a, a very limited license under the applicable contract clause, government. Back off. This is our stuff. Sure. For all we know, this company might have developed these drawings and these capabilities for the uh, Dreamliner or something. Sure, sure. Or other commercial customers. Got it. All right. Uh, and the government notably didn't argue with that. They they didn't contest that the subcontractor had used its own money or private funds to develop uh, the drawings or the technology associated with the drawings. What they argued was there was a special exception in the statute and in the clause that says if data is needed for operation, maintenance, installation, or training, then the government gets a unrestricted rights. And there, there is an exception to the exception. <laughs> Whenever it comes to uh, the government intellectual property licensing scheme, it's very complicated and there are a lot of moving parts. So even if data is necessary for the government to maintain what it's buying, if it's detailed manufacturing or process data, the government gets the data but still has the limited license. Right, but if it's operations, maintenance, installation, or training, commonly known as omit, then mm -hmm. the government does have that right to use in an unlimited way. So as long as it's not related to 
the contractor's secret sauce. That's the exception to the exception, detailed manufacturing and process data. So if it's needed for training and for maintenance, but it doesn't get into the manufacturing processes, the secret sauce of the contractor or subcontractor, then the government gets an unrestricted rights license. And that's what they were arguing here. We need this to maintain the equipment uh, over the long haul. And under the you know rights scheme that's in the contract and in the regulations, we get unrestricted rights. And actually, an interesting feature of this particular case, they settled the issue of the license that the government got in this these drawings. The contractor conceded through settlement that the government was entitled to an unrestricted rights license. And normally, you would, you would fight over whether this data was really needed for operation, maintenance, installation, or training, and whether it was detailed manufacturing or process data. But settlement eliminated that issue. All right. What did the Contract Board of Appeals say? They sided with whom? So the, the Armed Services Board sided with the government, and they said essentially that the government could challenge the legends that the contractor put on its drawings and that the legends that the contractor put on the drawings weren't consistent with the government's license. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a partner at Haynes Boone. All right, so it seems cut and dried. If there was a statutory carve-out for omit data, then the government, some sharp-eyed guy in the Air Force, saw that and prevailed. And this, though, has a long history of dispute both the omit data being statutorily protected, if you will, or carved out, omitted, from what the government can't do normally with intellectual property. I mean, there's a history to this whole issue, isn't there? There has been a lot of back and forth and debate within DOD and on the Hill about how to deal with commercial contractors, because there's kind of a tension between two really big principles when it comes to the government intellectual property. One of those principles is the government recognizes the need for cutting-edge commercial technology and that intellectual property is important to commercial companies. That's how they distinguish themselves and their products. And it's one of the biggest concerns that non-traditional defense contractors have in looking at the defense market. Say, is the government going to insist on getting you know, the rights in to you know, my uh, proprietary information? So DOD recognizes that there has to be some respect for proprietary rights of contractors or people just won't do business with the federal government. Sure. So there's really a secondary issue, or you could look at this two ways. One is the use in an unrestricted way by the government, but that doesn't let the government redistribute it freely to other people. So therefore, whatever use the government gets, it pays for. It just might be paying for less than what a commercial client would pay for for the same intellectual property. Fair way to put it? Yeah. The Well, so the, the government's concern in, in negotiating this is it wants, you know, DOD wants rights to be able to maintain what it's buying over the long haul and not have to go back to the seller and have it maintained by third parties. So OMIT data is really the government's attempt to make sure that it's able to use what it's buying from uh, from contractors, that including commercial contractors. But there are real tensions between respecting the contractor's rights and making sure that the government gets the rights that it needs. So maybe the answer for contractors then is to go into this with a pricing scheme that compensates them for the way their property is actually going to be used. 
certainly contractors, and after this decision, contractors and subcontractors doing business with DOD have to look very carefully at what documents they're providing to the government and what rights the government is is going to insist on. And there's there's greater exposure than folks would have thought. And the Section 809 panel of a few years back that proposed three volumes, three or four volumes of defense procurement reforms, this elimination of the omit exception was something that they proposed, wasn't it? That's right. So the 809 panel was looking at how DOD buys intellectual property, specifically commercial intellectual property. And they identified that although there's this policy in the FAR that says the government will only buy the intellectual property rights that commercial contractors provide in the commercial marketplace and will only deliver what they deliver in the commercial marketplace, DOD has these exceptions that deviate from that general practice in the FAR. So the DFARs includes OMIT and a few other exceptions for types of data that contractors are required to give up even though they don't provide it to their commercial customers. The 809 panel, in looking at that, said this is a disincentive for contractors to participate in the defense market, and DOD's rights are adequately protected by the rest of the DFARs. This is really overreach, and DOD should engage like any other private contractual party and negotiate for those rights if it wants them and not claim them by default. And so they proposed getting rid of those exceptions. But nevertheless, the exceptions persist, to use the modern parlance. Indeed, they do. If you're uh, waiting on Congress to fix your problems, you may be waiting a long time. Procurement attorney Dan Ramish is a partner at Haynes Boone. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW Colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was 
great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, 
we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.